Thank you. Um, I just want to say real quick so that we don't have to do this at the end of the talk. Um, I just want to say thank you. The conversations we've been having all day with many of you has just been a joy. That's, that's what we love to do. To be with you, to hear you, to uh, in any way be able to walk with you in your ministry. And so I, I want to thank you for that. We had a lot of resources out there and a lot of them are, are almost gone. Uh, I know we'll make this, uh, if, if they sell out or whatever, you can still purchase them. When we go home, we'll mail them to you. We'll take care of the shipping because that was Tony's fault because he didn't bring enough. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, but so uh, please think, I, I just want to say thank you for that. The talk that we're giving this afternoon is available in this Faith in Light of the New Evangelization. And then also it's uh, in this book. Uh, this was our first book. It's chock full of stories. You're going to hear some of them this afternoon. And then I wrote a second one uh, that dealt with the saints and, their, and how they shared the Gospels. In this Casting Us with the Saints, 56 different stories of how the saints shared the Gospel. So now we don't have to take care of that this afternoon or after the talk. Let us pray. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just ask for this grace, Lord. To give us a grace to be a disciple and therefore be a steward. But Lord, we ask now for a gift to be a witness. To be able to share what we have come to know to be true, come to know to be life. Let us be that instrument, Lord. Mother Mary, please pray for us as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Mother Perpetual Help, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our final reflection is called the Seven Pillars of Effective Evangelization. And before we even get to evangelization, I want to make sure that we are on the same page when it comes to evangelization. And hopefully this will be a very easy connection because of Tony's talk last night and in my talk on stewardship this morning. Um, but that is this. We have a moral obligation to evangelize. I'll say that again. We have a moral obligation to evangelize, to share the gospel. As Catholics, as Christians, it is not an option. We must, and I mean it with all the weight of a moral obligation. So, for instance, as Catholics, we say we have a moral obligation to go to Mass on Sunday. And if we don't, and it was our fault, then we have done something wrong. We have failed. Well, if we are calling ourselves disciples and we are not sharing the gospel, we have done something wrong. We have failed. Now, in one of those CDs, I have an entire one-hour presentation just on that one statement. Uh, but that's not this talk, so I'll give you the abbreviated version, like the 55-minute version. Um, and I'll use this. We were talking about being a steward, and a steward is someone who recognizes the gifts that God has given us and shares them. It is taking the love of Christ in our discipleship relationship and sharing that love with others. Well, I want you to keep this in mind, that the greater the gift, the more it needs to remain a gift. The greater the gift, the more it needs to remain a gift. I don't know if in your family you have some sort of heirloom that's been passed down through the ages. It was, it was a few years ago, my, I went over to my mother's house and she said to me, she says, Chris, do you want my dining room table? And I said, you mean, you mean grandma's table? Yeah. You want grandma's table? I'm going to get a bigger table. All the grandkids can fit around. Yeah, I want grandma's table. I mean, that was the table that every Christmas, every Easter, every Thanksgiving, every time we went and visited grandma and grandpa, we ate around that table. We played cards around that table. We did puzzles on that table. I almost lost my life at that table because I spilled cream corn on the brand new carpet. All right. Yeah, I want, I want grandma's table. So we were bringing it over to my house, and my mother shared this with me, and I never knew this. She said this was actually grandma's mom's table. 
So now, every Christmas, every Easter, every Thanksgiving, anytime we, <clears throat> we have uh, you know, friends, family over, my kids are eating at their great-great-grandmother's table. Guess what I can't wait to do? To pass it on. The greater the gift, the more it needs to remain a gift. Well, my brothers and sisters, what is the greatest gift that our Lord has given us? Now, some of you might think, well, it's life. And I would agree, that's, that's, that's logical, it's reasonable. I want to propose that the greatest gift that we have been given is salvation. The fact that we are not doomed to hell, but we have a hope of eternal life. There is nothing greater than that. Well, the greater the gift, the more it needs to remain a gift. We have to share that gift. We have to give it to others. Right? So we have a moral obligation to evangelize. Now, how are we going to do this? That's what Tony and I are going to reflect upon this afternoon. How are we going to do this? We want to make sure that you understand that the seven pillars are not a program. Evangelization, like discipleship, like stewardship, is not a program. It's not do A and then B and then whoa, someone loves Jesus now. I wish it were. I, I bet every parent and every grandparent wish, wish it worked that easy. But it doesn't. It is a way of life. It is a movement of the Holy Spirit. It is a movement of grace. What the seven pillars are, though, they are not steps, but they are fundamental principles that Tony and I have seen, both in our own lives and in any ministry, any parish, any individual who's sharing the gospel well, all seven pillars are there. And it's something that I think is in the life of Jesus' ministry as well. So are we ready for these seven pillars? Are we ready? The first pillar is prayerful. The first pillar is? I was a teacher for 13 years. There will be a test at, on this at the end of this class. The first pillar is prayerful. Every time we see Jesus have something momentous in his life, we see him go to pray. Before he picks the apostles, obviously before he launches his public ministry, before major miracles, and obviously before his death on the cross, we see him in prayer. So we must be like him, a people of prayer. There's an old axiom that says you cannot give what you do not have. And if our desire is to share a relationship with Jesus Christ with somebody, then guess what? We need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be a people of prayer. You know, Tony and I get on planes and off of planes, and if you've been on a plane, you know, you get on the plane, they run you out to, the run, to, the, to take off, and they give you what they call their safety instructions. Or as I like to call them, this is what you'll be doing moments before you die. Instructions. I'm probably pretty close to having them memorized, but there's one part that always says, in the unlikely incident that the cabin loses pressure, which I always appreciate that they tell me this is unlikely, okay? But the unlikely incident that the cabin loses pressure, the compartment above you will drop down a mask, and you are to put that mask on first before you help your neighbor. Why? Because you have got to be breathing and conscious in order to help them. So too, in the work of evangelization, you have got to be breathing in order to help them. What help will we be to the unconscious if ourselves are unconscious? We've got to be a people who are seeking holiness. God is more concerned with sanctifying you than he is with sanctifying others through you. Now that may seem like an awkward expression to use when I talk about evangelization, but there is a priority to this work. A priority that says, I have got to be holy. You know, just to share a last story. When, when I taught, and I taught in high school for 10 years, sometimes I would catch wind of, of what some of my high school students were doing on the weekends. And it would be heartbreaking. And every once in a while, I had to ask myself, you know, if my students had St. John Bosco as their teacher, 
or St. John Vianney as their teacher? Would their life on the weekends be different? And if I honestly answered that question, I didn't like the answer. Because I would think that their lives might be different. Because St. John Bosco was that impressive. And St. John Vianney was that impressive. Now, I'm not saying that St. John Bosco didn't lose young men. I mean, he was going after the heart of hearts. I'm not saying that John Vianney didn't lose parishioners. But I'm saying what we need to do if we have broken hearts over family members, sons and daughters and grandchildren that have left the church, let's get really serious about prayer. Let's get really serious about us becoming saints so that light will shine in the darkness. So the first pillar is prayerful. Finally. <laughs> that guy can talk. The second, prayer, the second pillar is invitational. So the second pillar is invitational. When we see Jesus' public ministry, what do we see? We see him going to the Sea of Galilee and personally inviting Peter and Andrew to follow him. We see him extended invitation to the, to the rich young man. We see him constantly extending personal one-on-one -on -one invitations. And if we're going to be people of prayer, what ought we be praying about? I, for one, one of the main things, obviously a, a relationship with God and those kind of things, but always have that constant discernment of, Lord, who do you want me to invite? And to what? Am I talking about a personal invitation constantly to go to Mass? Every Sunday I have to invite somebody else to go to Mass with me. My wife would eventually go insane. Like she's like, I, I need you to like be focused on our seven children at Mass. You know, to have like these four other people sitting beside us might be a little much, you know? But, it, but at the same time, maybe that is the invitation. But maybe the invitation is to the fish fry. Maybe the invitation is simply to, to come over and watch the big game. Maybe the invitation is to, to build a deck. Do you see what I'm saying? The invitation can be about anything. It can be to go to coffee. It could be to hang out. It could be a lot of different things. But a spirituality of invitation where you look another person in the eye and invite them means something. And I'm telling you, the invitation can't be in our bulletins. Now, it can be. But that's not a very good invitation. What we don't see in the scripture is Jesus walking around, unrolling a scroll, stapling it to a Lebanon cedar that says, if you want to be my disciple, meet me at four o'clock over by the Sea of Galilee. Is it, would that have worked? No. Because the reality is our bulletins, our pulpit announcements, are people that are already there. And not only that, but it's not very personal. And you and I both know that a personal invitation is what gets people places. I would guess that many of you are here because someone gave you a personal invitation. Maybe it was a general announcement, but how much more important does that seem? How much more important does that feel? You know when you're not invited to the Christmas party that you couldn't go to anyway? How offended you are that you didn't even receive the invite? I, I was going to go anyway, but you could have at least invited me. And how much better it feels when someone does reach out and say, I'd like you to be a part of this, part of something that I'm doing. It's very deeply personal. A couple of examples of this. I have, uh, uh, when, I was, when I was teaching all the way back in the day, there was a, a young, you know, studly, tall, dark, and handsome Division I prospect football player that was on our football team. And I coached football, and I saw this kid, 
and all the girls liked him. All the guys wanted to be him. You know, he ran the 4-4-40, and every, you know, major college team was looking at him. Just a studly guy, right? And I remember looking at him, and I thought, you know, there's a group of guys that we meet every Thursday to go to Mass together. Thursday evening, we go to Mass, we hang out, we play some Frisbee, you know, we eat, because that's what guys do. And I looked, at, I looked at this guy, Chris. Don't worry, it wasn't that Chris. The tall, dark, handsome, and athletic thing probably pushed it the other direction. But, but Chris, I looked at Chris and I said, Chris, I think that you'd really enjoy this. I think that you should come to our Thursday night. It's awesome. The group of guys that are there are, are really great guys. They're your style. I think you'd really enjoy this. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, I, you know, I have a huge test tomorrow, and I really wish I could come, but I can't. I said, okay, that's fine. So the next week I asked him again, right? Because last week he had a big test. So this week he doesn't have a big test. But this week he had to, you know, hang out with his girlfriend because they were going to watch the show, and he promised, you know, he didn't want to stand her up. And so then the next week I asked him, and the next week, and the next week. Eventually he actually gave me the excuse that he had to wash his cat. Princess. He had to wash Princess. And I just looked at him like, okay, well, I'll just ask you next week. The invitation sometimes need to, needs to be persistent. And I really mean that. It needs to be persistent. Don't take no for an answer. And don't take excuses as a no. Eventually, he looked at me one day and he said, Mr. Brandt, can you just stop asking? I don't want to go. I said, well, finally, an honest response I appreciate that. I'll leave you alone for a few weeks. <laughs> Over the course of the year, I continued to just, every once in a while, just a little prod. No big deal. And he didn't show up all year. In May, on a Thursday night, here comes Chris into the church to go to Mass with us. And he looked at me, and I was, I was like, why are you here? What's going on? And he said, your invitation reminded me of something. Your constant, annoying invitation. And he said, I really want to be into my faith. But I was so afraid of what all the guys on the team would think of me. And what the girls would think of me. And I'm sitting there going, you're the biggest stud in the school. And you're afraid of what people are going to think of you if you come to mass with me? That's ridiculous. He goes, I'm tired of it. I'm, I don't care what they think anymore. I'm here and I'm here to stay. And he came to Mass every Thursday for the rest of the summer. And at the end of that summer, he consecrated his life to Jesus through Mary, according to St. Louis de Montfort. He went off to Pittsburgh State University because he broke his leg and ended up going D2. Became a first-team All-American. His roommate became Catholic. He led half the team in prayer before every game at a state university. He wasn't afraid anymore. He became the director of Camp Totus Tuits. Came back to our school and became a football coach, and led some of those guys in morning prayer every morning before school. The persistence of our invitation, if the Holy Spirit is prompting us, let's move without hesitation and without accepting no's. The other, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, this is a very brief story, this is, uh, I would walk the students and uh, I would walk around the, the, the halls of the, of the school and I'd pray a rosary often, you know, a lot of times during my planning period, for the students that were in the classrooms, because they need it, right? And I remember walking along with this kid named Phil. He was leaned up against the, the locker. He was kicked out of class again. He got kicked out of class every day. He was one of those kids. We all know who those kids are. And he was kicked out of class. I leaned up against the locker. I sat down next to him. I looked at him and I said, how you doing today, Phil? And he goes, oh, I'm good, I'm good. I was like, no, seriously, how are you doing? And he looked at me and he goes, Mr. Brandt, that was the first time in my life anyone has ever asked me or cared how I am doing. And I was like, this got heavy in a heartbeat. And I said, it sounds like you have a lot to talk about. And he got all nervous. I was like, we don't have to talk here. 6 a.m. tomorrow morning at IHOP. I'll buy. Anything you want to say, I'm all ears. And he looked at me like, 6 a.m.? 
Like, he can't show up to school on time. This kid's going to show up at 6 a.m. I showed up about 5.55, and he was waiting for me. And we talked all morning. He ended up coming to Nice Holy Queen, you know, the, our Thursday night group. He started being a little bit different, but he got kicked out of school anyway. Lost track of him. Last time I ran into him, he was holding down a full-time job, and he was traveling the nation, giving or training people how to give a certain retreat for kids with broken homes. That was the last time I heard from him. You see, our invitation has to be personal. We actually have to mean it. And I meant it with him. And I think that if we learn to, to put ourselves out there and really discern that invitation, and we develop a spirituality of invitation, lives will be changed. The Holy Spirit is trying to work through us. But we've got to step out and allow him to work in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. So the second pillar is invitational. The third pillar is hospitable. Third pillar is? Christ welcomed everyone, whether it's a Pharisee or a tax collector. He was willing to have a drink with a, with a Samaritan woman. He was willing to enter a Saturian's house. The fact is that the invitation will mean nothing if that once they come to us, they are not made to feel welcomed. Like this is home. This is where they belong. And I don't know if you know this, but many times our Catholic churches do not score well when it comes to being hospitable. And I remember a time, I must have been like in fifth grade, my mother and I, we had to go to a different church for a vigil mass, a Saturday vigil mass. We walk into the foyer of the church, and there's a couple there, they have a big smile, they say, hello, welcome to St. Francis, we're so glad you're with us tonight. And my mom, she literally stopped, and she looked at them and goes, is this the Catholic Church? <laughs> this, this here? It's funny, but it's sad that we have got to be more welcoming. We have got to open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to those who are coming. Because if they are not made to feel welcome, if they do not feel that connection, the chances of them coming back again outside of a grace of God are just about zero. We've got to make sure that they belong. I mean, we all know what's going to happen in about three months, right? We're going to come to Christmas Mass, Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, and there's going to be people in the pews that were not there last week. And let's be really specific. There's going to be somebody sitting in my pew. And we actually get annoyed by this, that they're sitting in my pew, that we, we actually, note this, we get annoyed because we actually have to go to Mass early just to get a parking spot. What a problem to have. And we're upset about this. And we're sitting there thinking, where were you last week? I'm telling you right now, I don't care where they were at last week. We have got to be happy that they are with us now. Because if they do not feel welcome, the chances of us seeing them the next weekend, there isn't a chance. We've got to make sure that they realize that this is home. That they are actually missing something by not being here every week. That's what we have to infuse into our attitude of being welcoming. And this hospitality needs to be marked by two things. To be authentic and to be joyful. It needs to be sincere and marked with real joy. Pope Francis has kind of said the same thing in two different ways. I love both of them. He actually says there's too many Catholics that walk around like it's Lent without Easter. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Like Lent without Easter, like these Catholics are just sitting going, oh, it's Friday. No meat. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine our family, our co-workers, our neighbors hearing us speak like this? I mean, what are they going to sit there and go, wow, how can I be as miserable as you? Where do I sign up 
for that, I just, I give a monthly check and I sprinkle some water on me and I can be that miserable? That sounds awesome. He also said, for, for instance, there are too many Christians that look like they just left a funeral. This is what, we lack joy. A real joy, an authentic joy, a joy that gets people's attention. Now, I've heard people sit there and say, look, having hospitality committees or being hospitable, that's not going to save anybody. It's grace that saves people. It's Jesus. It's the sacraments that save people. I agree. 100%, I agree. But you know what welcoming somebody does do? It opens up their heart. Just to share like two examples of this, and I'm going to share one that I normally don't, but because we're on Benedictine grounds, right? Isn't that true? We're on Benedictine grounds. Um, there's a story of St. Benedict as they were building Monte Cassino that the monks had this huge rock that they needed to move. And he went, and, and one of the monks tried to move it, and it wouldn't move. And he called over another monk, and they grabbed it, and, and it still wouldn't move. He grabbed two more, and the four of them could not get this boulder to even nudge itself. And he began to think, well, maybe there's another issue here. And so they went and got the Holy Father, and they went and got St. Benedict and called him over. And St. Benedict simply blessed the stone. They lifted it up like air, and they moved it. To me, I think that's a great symbol of what being hospitable does for people. It simply opens them up to the grace of God, just moves their heart, just a crack in the window that opens their heart to the grace of God. I have a good friend who shared the story of her conversion with me. She was Catholic. She left the church in college, like, like many of us. She really says that she became agnostic, left Christianity altogether. She got married, had some kids, and you know how that kind of works. Things begin to tug at your heart. She thought about, well, maybe it's time to find Jesus again. She wasn't ready for Catholicism, so she went to the closest Protestant church. She said she went into their service, she went to the back pew, snuck in, and she said this is what changed her life. At the opening hymn, they stood, and the gentleman next to her simply took out the hymnal, opened it up, and shared it with her. All he did was share it with her. And she said, at that moment, I knew I was home. See, even the smallest acts can open us up. Now, praise God, she actually made it all the way back to the Catholic Church. I taught her sons in the Catholic school. But even the smallest acts, with done with sincerity and joy, can open someone up to something that is truly inspirational, life-changing grace. So the third pillar is... Hospitable. The fourth pillar is inspirational. The fourth pillar is? The reality is that Christ spoke a different message. You know, we've heard this message over and over because we've read the gospel over and over. We, uh, hopefully, we've read the gospel over and over. But the reality is that Jesus spoke a message that was radically different than what everyone else was preaching. He spoke a message that was all about love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why would I do that? Who was persecuting them? The Romans. Pray for the Romans. Pray for those who, who threaten to stone you. Pray for those who want to condemn you. Are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. What is this man saying? This message is too hard to believe and too hard to accept. He preached a radical new message. And in a world, a society that had no hope, he breathed the spirit of truth back into them. And I don't know if you look around our society now, but there's a lot of despair going on right now. It's like... There's a debate on how quickly we're going to send the world to hell in a handbasket, right? When we look out into our culture, do we see a culture of death 
do we see a culture of despair? And how are we going to breathe the spirit of hope, a message of salvation back into the world? How are we going to inspire them? How are we going to do this? And I really believe, and I, I'm, I'm very sincere, I really believe that it's a lot easier than you think. I wanted to demonstrate this to my students, and so what I, what I did, I just said, let's get everybody excited about something that has nothing to do with our faith. Let's just get everybody excited about something. So I said, let's all, let's all drink Tang. You know, the orange drink. This stuff is awesome. I mean, it's so delicious. I mean, first of all, it's got 100% of your vitamin C, 10% of your vitamin B12, 10% of your vitamin B6. It's even got riboflavin, whatever that is. It's in there. I mean, this stuff is developed by NASA. Neil Armstrong drank it on the moon. We got some moon juice going on here. I mean, this stuff is so amazing that it's distributed in more, to more countries than Coca-Cola. It is made in more flavors than Kool-Aid. I don't know if any of that's true, but I read it on the internet, so it's got to be true. So we're talking about, you know, Tang, and, and these kids, the students were sitting there like, are you, are, you, are you serious right now? So I pull out a canister of Tang, like the great big Sam's Club-sized canister, with a funnel, a little scooper. I was like, get your water bottles out. Let's go. Let's mix up some tang. We got these kids so excited. We did this for about two weeks. And we got these kids so excited. They're walking around on one side of their backpack. They had a little tank canister and the other side, water bottles. You know, I had one girl actually do her oil painting project for art. It was the tang label and she gave it to me. It's like, you did did you know this is like, like an experiment type of thing? This is like, I don't actually like Tang that much, but thank you very much. It's very sweet of you. This was I had to go to the local grocery store and tell them to order more Tang. They kept selling out. I walked around the school two weeks later. I walked around the school during lunch and counted how many, and they're all closed lunch. They can't leave the school. Counted how many kids were drinking Tang for lunch that day. School of over 1,200 students. Over 600 of them were drinking Tang for lunch that day. I'm telling you, you can inspire people to do about anything. With what? With passion and conviction. Spread the faith with passion and conviction. I looked at them and I said, imagine if you had this much excitement about our Lord in the Eucharist. Imagine the fervor and the zeal of this school and how this school would transform this entire city and this entire diocese if we just had that level of passion and conviction. And I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters, I'm telling you right now, we've got to have that passion and conviction. And you might look at me and say, <laughs> I can't be that inspirational. I mean, obviously you have to be tall, bald, beautiful, obnoxious, right? You've got to have this intensive personality where you look people in the soul, you know, that kind of, you've got to have that. No, 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 no. Think about the people that have inspired you. Think about the most inspiring people in this world, whether it's Mother Teresa or St. John Paul II. Think about the people that are immediate in your life. And, and I told you last night the little, the little bit about my mother, right? and how she was so inspiring. But on the other side of that, I had my dad. My dad was an, an incredible man, very well educated. He, he was the principal of the Catholic elementary school and then went on to become an executive. As an executive, he went all over the world. He, he actually went to the White House and presented on adoption law to George W. Bush in the White House cabinet he had, he had assembled. He went to Calcutta, India and sat down with Mother Teresa to talk about adoption. He got a personal conversation with her for about an hour. Had a couple, has a couple of personal letters from her at home. This is a man who has heavy influence on all the people, the entire presbyterate and even the bishop within our diocese. He had, he had the ear of the right people because of his influence. And when he retired to go home and take care of my mother who had a bone disease, he decided he needed a little work in which he could serve the people that had helped our family 
for all those years. So he retired from being an executive to come back to the elementary school that he was the principal of, and he became the janitor. He became the janitor. He was emptying the trash can of a teacher he hired 20 years ago. These teachers would go to him before they went to the principal for advice. To the janitor. Let's invite the janitor in to give a little talk. Come on, kids. And he comes in. Well, when I met Mother Teresa, and they're sitting there going, that's the janitor. They're trying to figure out who this person is. I'm telling you, when he became the janitor, I have never been more proud of my father than when he showed the humility to go from being a high-powered executive to being a janitor at the elementary school so that he could take care of my mother. Inspiration doesn't come from being loud and obnoxious. Inspiration comes from living the right way, with passion and conviction. Breathe the spirit of hope back into our culture by living right, by living for others. Mother Teresa told my dad, and this was one incredible Thing that he brought home, there were, there were two things that she said to him. First of all, and the famous quote, and he said, she would say this personally, so it's not just a quote attributed to her. She would say, unless your life is lived for others, it is not worthwhile. And then at one point she said, Bob, that's my dad's name, she said, Bob, pray for me at the end of their meeting. And as they sat there and talked, she said, I will pray for you. Will you pray for me? And he thought that was an uneven exchange, but it was worth an ask. Mother Teresa's praying for me, you know. And she said, I will. And then he stopped, and in his wisdom, he said, what would I pray for Mother Teresa about? And she said, pray for me that I don't abuse my incredible power. I'm Mother Teresa. I get what I want. Pray for me that I don't abuse the incredible power the Holy Spirit has instilled in me. You want to be inspirational? Understand the power of the Holy Spirit is at your fingertips. He wants to empower you. He wants to anoint you. Be an inspiration to all those around you. So the fourth pillar is inspirational. Fifth pillar is sacramental. Fifth pillar is... Christ came to deliver salvation and grace, but he chose to do it in the sacraments. So I mean that we must be sacramental in two ways. First of all, we must be sacramental. You and I must be a people about the sacraments, in particular, that is the Eucharist and confession. Feeding ourselves from the bread of life constantly not just on Sunday Mass, but can we get there more often? Can we go to daily Mass? Can we add a, just an extra Mass on top of that? Can we spend time with our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament? But also to be about confession, to make that a regular part of our lives. I really encourage everybody, if you're not in the habit of going to regular confession, to go at least once a month. At least once a month. It will change your life. I make that promise everywhere I go. If you go to confession once a month for six months, I promise you it will change your life. Associate it with something in your life, you know, uh, payday or the first Saturday or the last Friday or whenever you see Norm. You know Norm? Norm the barber? Yeah, Tony doesn't know him either. Um, I get my hair cut about once a month, so it's an easy association for me. Make my hair look good, make my soul look good. I go to confession, all right? We got to be a people about the sacraments, but we also need to be leading people to the sacraments. And this is where the work of evangelization, the lifting, the heavy lifting is taken off of our shoulders. Because this is really the work of evangelization, is really, it's the work of an usher. I mean, imagine like a Broadway musical, one of those fancy ushers in the tuxedo. What is the usher's job? It's to take the ticket holder and to walk them down and to put them into their seat so that they can see the show. The usher is not the show. The usher is to not to be a distraction. It's to put the person so that they can experience the play. That's our job. 
I really realized that one time when we were doing uh, a youth retreat. And it was my turn to give the, the confession prep talk. If you've ever had the joy of giving a confession prep talk, it is, it's not the most funnest talk to give. I mean, the whole point of it is that, you know, you have to talk about sin and there's hell and you need to stop sinning because there's, yay, see, there's, it's not fun, all right? But it was, it was my duty. And I gave this talk to a group of about 30 young people and there was this one gentleman in the back corner that was just, he was not having any of it. He was not entertained. He did not find me funny. Um, he only looked at me twice during the entire talk and I took it as a bodily threat to my life, okay? Um, he, was not, he was not impressed. We got up from there and we walked over to the church. The priest exposed the Eucharist in adoration and then the priest went into the confessional. And you begin just to pray for these young people, to pray for the first one to get up and go because if you know if one of them will go, they're all gonna go. And that young man that was in the back corner, he was the first to get up and go into the box. And now I began to fear for father's life. Right. He came out, he knelt down just for a little bit, and then he came over to me, and he says, I'm supposed to pray some Hail Marys. Do you, do you have that on, a, on something I can read? So I went, I found a holy card with the Hail Mary on it, and I gave it to him, and he knelt there and prayed during the entire hour. After adoration was over, we went outside of the church and that man came up to me, that young man came up to me, looked me in the eyes and he just said two words. He said, thank you. And he turned away and he walked home. And I had just a movement of the Holy Spirit that I knew this. What was he thanking me for? What, what did I do for him? You know what I did for him? Nothing. Nothing. On the natural level, I had done nothing for him. I was not entertaining to him. I was not funny to him. All I did was usher him. All I did was give him an opportunity to encounter the living God in that confessional. To experience the mercy of God in that confessional. That's all I did. And my brothers and sisters, that's all any of us can do is to usher them back to the table of life, to bring them to those miraculous waters of baptism, to bring them back into that mercy of the confessional. That's all we can do. And let God do what he does, which is save them. Amen? So the fifth pillar is sacramental. The sixth pillar is formational. So the sixth pillar is... We see that in the time of Christ, that, that Jesus spent time with the masses, right? He was at the Sermon on the Mount, you know, with a, with a great multitude. He did the loaves and the fishes, right? And he was with a lot of people a lot of time, especially during those last three years. But even during those last three years, he spent time with just the primary disciples, and of those, the apostles. And of those, the three. And specific time with just Peter. He saw a real opportunity that if I form my apostles, my twelve, they will then turn out and form the others. But I need to spend my time with the twelve. And I, as a youth minister, that happened all the time where people would say, why are you spending so much time with this kid and that kid and that kid? Because I literally don't have the ability right now, I'm not holy enough to quadruple locate. I can't buy locate with all of you. I can't like split into a hundred different people and spend personal time with you. But I can form these. I can hand select them and really spend time forming them. Forming them to then turn outward and to form others. But in order to do that, we do have to get messy. We talked about that last night. We've got to get messy. When I was in college, my sophomore year of college, I, uh, before, my, before I really went through my conversion, I sat there and I remember sitting on Wednesday nights, I would sit with one of my buddies and we would drink beer together. The, just the two of us, no girls allowed. And we'd complain about the world, 
we sit there and drink. And this, this girl came to the door and she knocked on the door. Now this girl was, was, uh, she was, she was righteous. This is a righteous girl. Pretty sure she made her own shirts. She knocked on the door. Not that that's bad, but we made fun of this shirt quite a bit because we were rude and obnoxious people. And she knocked on the door and she said, what are you doing? I said, we're in here drinking beer. <laughs> and knowing that she would want no part of that. And she goes, well, can I have one? Uh, sure. Come on in. She sits down on the couch in my dorm room and Justin's looking at me like, I was like, don't worry about it. So we told a few crass jokes. Now, we'll make her uncomfortable enough to leave. She wouldn't leave. Justin took off his leather shoes that reeked like... They reeked. I was like, this is my room. Don't. He took it off and he put his beer in his shoe and he goes, look, it's a koozie. And she looked at him like, what is wrong with you? Took off her shoe. He goes, that's not a koozie, that's a shoozy. <laughs> what? <laughs> she is one-upping us now. This is a problem. We sat there and we were like, fine. And we all laughed and had a good time and she finally left. And we looked at She came back the next week. She would not leave. And she would not leave me. We go out. I hope I'm not leading you on, but I'm, I'm simply not so we're clear. And she looked at me and she laughed at my face. Like it was the most, well, that's not, it's not that funny. I'm home, my roommate and I, buddy, buddy, shake on it. I got your back if you got mine. I had no idea what to do with my faith. I don't know how to do any of this. And like looked at me like, you want me to teach you how to pray? I was like, I taught you how to throw a spiral. You teach me how to, throw, how to, how to pray. And she, her wing, there is Anne-Marie, the Holy Spirit. It's like, why him? Fine, Lord, if that's who you want me to pass out with what the Holy Spirit has in store for us. Our formation of walking with another person on that journey may surprise us. And I'm telling you, come up with unique opportunities. I'm working night where they come over and we drink whiskey and we pray and, and we have spent a lot of time together because all together the questions and the comments and how to become a better father has come up so many, not just catechesis, head and heart. Our seventh and final mission full. I know the other words ended in the old sound. Oh, mission full. We must be full of the mission. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. What did the Father send the Son to accomplish? Salvation. To save humanity. The mission that has been handed on. That was the great commission of which does not have a mission. She is mission. Everything the church does is for the purpose of saving souls. Everything is for that mission. From her schools, to her hospitals, to the liturgy, to the soup kitchen. Everything is for building up the kingdom of God and bringing others to Jesus Christ. We have to answer that mission. We have to send those people out that we have prayed for and invited in and welcomed and inspired them. And so they can truly be a disciple. Because to be a disciple means not an option. I think of the story of the fig tree from the Gospels. Remember the fig tree that was minding its own business until the Son of God came walking by? And he searches the tree for figs. And there are none. Remember Jesus' reaction? He cursed the tree. Cursed be this tree, may no one ever eat of your fruit again. I tell you what, if there was ever a time I wish we could have had a camera and like the apostles' faces as they saw the Son of God yelling at a tree, I could just imagine them freaking out like John's like, the tree withered and good in its life. I mean, first of all, it was a living tree. We know because it 
died. We could perhaps say that, you know, perhaps it provided shade in the hot summer sun. Perhaps it could provide a resting place for a bird. Fruit. That we have given. Do we have fruit to show from our faith? In the Gospel of Mark, he actually gives us another detail to that story that is perhaps the most disturbing. It was not even the season. It wasn't even supposed to have fruit on it. Whether it's with family or whether it's friends, stranger, faith. Lest the divine Messiah come. That the mass exodus that we have experienced the church in America, that there is probably not by somebody who has left the church. How many of you have had a family member, a close one, a loved one, leave the church? With all of our heart. And perhaps when you think about your loved one who has left the church, maybe it just turns your stomach. Maybe to think about it. I don't want you to hide that pain. I don't want you to stop crying. I don't want them sayings, but one of them was this. He said, I souls. That pain, those tears, you know what you are experiencing? You are experiencing thirst for someone's salvation. You are closest to our Lord. That as much as you long for them to come back, He wants it more. He wants it more. He loves them more. And I want you to know this, that Jesus said that if we had the faith to move mountains, we could accomplish all things in Him. Now, I don't know anything about moving mountains. I'm from Kansas. But I think the hardest thing to move is... I think what Jesus was telling us is that if we heart me, he can do it for your loved ones. Amen? It is never too late to touch the heart of another, nor is it ever in vain. Amen? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Mother perpetual help, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Very good afternoon, everyone. Last, the last hurrah. Huh? The last hurrah. Let's just take a moment and place deeply his love, but also experience more deeply his call in our life. To be people of great generosity and graciousness. Father in heaven, we come before you this day and thank you for your love and you know, for your presence in our life and the meaning which you give to our... You know what you are experiencing? You are experiencing thirst for someone's salvation. You are closest to our Lord. That as much as you long for them to come back, He wants it more. He wants it more. He loves them more. And I want you to know this, that Jesus said... That if we had the faith to move mountains, we could accomplish all things in Him. Now, I don't know anything about moving mountains. I'm from Kansas. But I think the hardest thing to move is... And I think what Jesus was telling us is that if we heart me, He can do it for your loved ones. Amen? It is never too late to touch the heart of another, nor is it ever in vain. Amen. Our mother perpetual help in the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit.